You're really going to enjoy this podcast, team. It is a Inchland Masterclass with me today, Harriet Walker, power lifter, sports dietitian, clinical dietitian. We are talking Inchland hacks. And when we say hacks, molecular structure, what happens when you cool down rice? What happens to when you overcook your pasta versus having al dente? Harriet exposes all. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, bringing you everything you need, want, and should know about health, fitness, nutrition, and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent, or manage any injury, disease, or other health-related condition. Body Science Organic Apple Cider Vinegar Capsules with the Mother are keto and vegan friendly. Apple Cider Vinegar is rich in acetic acid and has been used as a natural health supplement for centuries. Did you know Apple Cider Vinegar actually increases ketosis, which is great news for all you keto fans out there. ACV is reported to improve your energy levels and boosts keto clarity. For the rest of us not living keto, adding apple cider vinegar to your diet may benefit a healthy gut, healthy hair, skin and nails and weight management, helping you feel good inside and out. If you find apple cider vinegar a little difficult to swallow, Body Science Organic Apple Cider Vinegar comes in a convenient capsule form and can be added to any meal plan, meal prep or smoothie. Welcome to Body Science HQ. This week's podcast, Insulin Masterclass with dietitian Harriet Walker. Harriet, welcome aboard. Hey, thanks for having me back. Okay, let's get this out. Insulin. It's a, it's a hot topic. It's a big topic. So we're going to break it down into tiny bite-sized pieces, probably like glucose molecules, even. Bite-size. Bite-size. Okay. Tasty food pun there. Insulin bite-size. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to discuss the mechanisms of insulin, what actually it is, a little cover on how hormones actually in, affect the body, how insulin assists with glucose removal from the blood. And then we're going to go through some basics on how can we actually improve our diet to make sure that that our insulin levels and our blood glucose levels are healthy. These are some of the questions that we get asked all the time as dietitians, and we actually see a lot of people with issues with their insulin levels. So these are really great questions for people to, to hear about, really. So can we start with what's its role in the body? The key thing is we need to remember that word. We have discussed it in other podcasts. It's homeostasis. Every day, our body is constantly working to keep our whole system at an even keel that is conducive to life. So when we see anything in our body that is outside of the range that is conducive to life, our body is always working to detect that as quickly as possible and get it back to a normal range. So this is when hormones are really important because they are the little sensing mechanisms and messengers in our body. So hormones are released from cells in response to something that might not be within a healthy range or an optimal range. So insulin is a peptide hormone. Mm -hmm. So it's a little chain of amino acids acids linked together to form this hormone and it is excreted from cells in response to the detection of increased blood glucose levels. So when we eat a meal, that food gets broken down into its various components and glucose is absorbed into the blood. And then what we see is the cells of the pancreas have these little islands of Langerhans. So these are little... The sp- islands of Langerhan. It sounds like a great holiday destination. It does, doesn't it? Or somewhere that you'd hide your tax money. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the islets of Langerhan contain beta cells. When we have glucose in the body, there is a chemical cascade, there's a little chemical reaction that happens, and insulin is excreted. So it's spat out from these little islets of Langerhan and they're put into the bloodstream. So from the bloodstream, we get insulin going on to cells. So insulin can connect with 
pretty much any cell in the body. And because glucose as a molecule is quite large, mm-hmm. it can't get into a cell membrane by itself. It needs to be helped. Okay. So if you think about cells, I was trying to think about a good analogy for cells to try and make this easier for people to understand. So this is what I think about at nighttime. If you wow. think of a circle, Greg, like a whole lot of chapa chups with the circle facing Did in. you pick chapa chups because you're talking to me? <laughs> Just quietly. I thought this would be relatable. Okay. So you've got two layers of chapa chups yep. with the round part facing each other and then the sticks facing outwards. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like a lipid phospholipid bilayer of a cell. So we've got a big circle, two rows of chapa chups in one big circle with the sticks facing outwards. The insulin comes in, parks itself in this, this sort of stick area and opens up a little hole to messenger into inside the cell to say, hey guys, there's too much glucose out here. We want to bring it outside. Then there's a little vesicle, like a little vehicle inside the cell that pops to the surface of the chupa chup bilayer and the glucose is sucked through that little hole into the cell where it can either be used as energy, it can be stored as muscle glycogen or cell glycogen, or it can be stored in adipose tissue as fat. So we're getting rid of all the excess glucose from the blood, which is unhealthy for us. We know that when our blood glucose levels are too high, that can cause an impact. It can be toxic to our body. Mm -hmm. And so what we want to do is the hormone cascade is set off. Insulin is popped out from the cells and we get glucose removed from the blood. So we're back to that homeostatic level of normal blood glucose levels. Done. Okay. So that was my chopper chop story. I'm not sure how well that's going to go down, but I like to get graphic. Okay. So you're sort of talking about the overarching action here of insulin is to control the storage and release of energy during feeding yes and fasting and well the opposite hormone to insulin is glucagon so Mm -hmm. you'll find in the body that with you know for every up there's a down and so the opposing hormone to insulin is glucagon Mm -hmm. so glucagon basically our body is always sensing how much energy cells have access to same again homeostasis if our cells don't have energy to function they're going to die so we're constantly sort of sensing there's little feelers out there in the body sensing whether we've got high glucose levels or low glucose levels. And if we get to the point where we are low blood sugar, glucagon is the opposing hormone to insulin and we see an increase in blood glucose levels. And insulin is the low blood glucose hormone and then glucagon is the opposite opposite direction. So when we need extra energy, so you can imagine, and we'll talk about this a little bit later with stress, we see the release of glucagon along with uh, adrenaline and cortisol because we associate that with increased energy in order to be able to fight or flight. And so we need extra glucose in the blood system. We also see this at night time. We might have an increased release in glucagon during sort of periods of low energy. And eventually, if we keep on going in that low energy system, low glucose scenario, we'll go into that sort of ketone production as well. So our body is really doing all these things as a protection mechanism to keep our cells from starving, basically. Yeah, so there's all these things. um, I think it's important to keep everything in perspective when we look at hormones and you know, vilifying one key part of the body, everything is there for a reason. So insulin has a really important role in the body. We do see that when insulin is, you know, out of order, out of whack a little bit for, and we'll talk. What do you mean by out of whack? So we know that when our diet isn't so great and we are constantly pumping glucose into our system as with a pretty poor diet, we are always seeing this increase in glucose levels and our body has to work really hard to pull that glucose out of the blood. So it's like if you 
you think about a little rat on a wheel mm-hmm. and that's the pancreas. So that's when the, where the insulin is secreted from. So if I had to run that wheel every time I had a glucose rich meal, that rat can either just go at a steady pace and be constantly clearing out just at a regular level, or I'm going to make that poor little rat be running, 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 running. And eventually it gets worn down, gets a bit tired and it either stops working. It doesn't secrete any insulin anymore. Yep. Or we see the opposite sort of kind of opposite where we're secreting more and more insulin because of the high glucose levels, but our cells, um, that chopper chop bilayer, the insulin isn't doing its job there. Uh, we get a weak response to that insulin. So the glucose isn't going back into the cells and that's what we call insulin resistance. The mechanism for insulin resistance is a bit unclear. So we're still trying to figure out what the cause of insulin resistance is. We do know that when people have a poor diet, when they're carrying a little bit of extra weight, that insulin resistance is probably one of the few steps behind actually full-blown type 2 diabetes. No, thanks. We don't want that. We don't want that one. So what are dietitians doing for insulin resistance? Well, there's a few different things that we can do. Have I jumped the gun here? No. No, 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 no. I mean, there's lots of different things that we can, there's lots of different approaches. And the two key approaches for insulin resistance or like pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, there is all words that are we associate with high blood glucose levels or uncontrolled blood glucose, yep. which are a few steps away from full-blown diabetes. And lifestyle are the two, well, um, exercise and diet are the two key modifiable things that we can approach when it comes to making somebody a little bit healthier when they've been faced with some issues around blood glucose control. So we will generally see people presenting with high blood triglycerides. So when that excess glucose is in the cell, it's not used for energy. It's not being used for muscle glycogen replenishment. It gets stored as triglycerides in the fat cell, the adipose tissue. And once, you know, if we get an excess buildup of fat uh, in the blood, we look at triglycerides and that is an indication that this person has got an excess of energy in their system and that's an indicator that they probably have some insulin resistance going on. We also see people with high blood pressure, fasting blood glucose levels, if they do the little prick test, um, are higher than than normal. And so once we have this sort of cluster of issues with a person, and we also see people carrying a weight around their middle, and that's also a big indicator that physically they're probably experiencing a little bit of insulin resistance. Oh, nasty. Yeah, not ideal. But from a dietary perspective, we want to make sure that people are firstly, I mean, a little bit of weight loss with insulin and resistance can actually do a big, a great big deal for reversing some of those negative health outcomes. So research has shown us that around seven to ten percent weight loss can make a very big difference to in, to resensitizing cells to insulin. Is that um, right? So it's not heaps really. It could be as much. I mean, for what's that? For eighty kilo person, that might be four, five, six, seven kilos lost. And chances are, if they've got a bit of a crappy diet, when I say crappy, I know you're going to ask me this question. I mean, filled with refined carbohydrates hydrates, high glycemic index foods, fast food, fried fats, that kind of gig. As soon as they start removing those, we see a nice fall in weight anyway. So weight loss is probably a key. Next step, we're looking at exercise. So we want to make sure that they are using their glucose that is in their blood. So they're moving, they're active, but also muscle can help with insulin, with managing blood glucose levels as well. Regular physical activity resistance training is really potent for resensitizing cells to insulin as well. And then there's a couple of other sort of from a, a dietary perspective, we can do a few different things. So so 
GI is so glycemic index is a an index of foods that contain carbohydrates and it is one of the ways we can rate how much blood glucose response we get to a food. Now that's a great story, but how do I know what the GI food is? Good story, Hansel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> glycemic index we can actually look up any food that sort of contains glucose. Yeah. We can check it out and see what the glycemic index of it is. It's going to be a number between one and one hundred, and it's in reference to a piece of white bread. So if something has a high GI, there's a chance, high chance it's going to contain a lot of sugar, um, added sugar. Uh, so we see a lot of the um, less healthy foods that have been more processed. The more processing, the easier it is for our body to use as energy. So what's a high GI? Glyce- what type of number are we looking for? Oh, a 70 or above. 70 or above? Yeah. There's sort of brackets for there. So we're looking at in the middle of being sort of the 40 to 55 as being the moderate and then above that we're looking at like quite a high GI and if it's close to bread it's having that that impact on our blood glucose levels quite rapidly so do you have a link on your website or something we can look at I can make sure that they're in the notes absolutely so harrietwalker.com.au yeah that's the one basically what we're looking at is when I consume a carbohydrate source how easily is it converted into sugar and released into my blood mm-hmm. the harder we can make this in terms of food the better so there's a few things we can do to reduce the glycemic index of a food one we can choose lower processed foods so choosing whole grains over you know processed cereals or white flours or fruit juices Mm -hmm. when we choose whole grains we're getting the energies wrapped up in fiber our body has to work to chop through the fiber which doesn't have a calorie content body can't use that as energy but it has to the body has to access that the calories from the whole grains and it takes a little bit longer so that reduces the spike the peak or the the glycemic response of the food we know that obviously we don't just eat carbohydrates in isolation. We want to make sure that we're having mixed meals, that we're utilising. You, we shouldn't, you shouldn't, shouldn't eat them in isolation. We shouldn't eat them in isolation. Good okay. correction. Because um, last probably, time I looked at a pack of red snakes, I think they were pretty well much in isolation. isolation. But hot tip, if you put that with some acetic acid, that would have reduced the uh, glycemic index. <laughs> Like apple cider vinegar. Apple cider vinegar and red snakes. Wow. Fabulous. So... <laughs> We, we should qualify what fabulous means there. It means... Awful. Awful. Um, <laughs> but best option of awful. Yeah. What I'm referring to there is acetic acid, which is, uh, you know, we might see vinegar as being a source of acetic acid. Acetic acid slows down gastric emptying. So when we have white bread with some like olive oil and balsamic vinegar, we're actually making it more difficult for our body to access that energy. We see a smaller peak. Only a dietitian would say, let's have red snake. What, what vinegar. Just, vinegar. And what else? I know a good way to kill a party. Oh, wow. Let's dip them. We're just <laughs> going to dip those the... in there and see what... <laughs> I'm actually going to make Harriet do this after this podcast. Who invited the dietitian to the party? All right, wow, kids. that's a beauty. <laughs> you can have red snakes as long as you dip them in, in vinegar. Oh, wow. Mom! <clears throat> wow. I don't want to. The, the research is so Balsamic vinegar and red snakes. What a winner. We might see vinegar in dressings. Just to clarify that with a little joke with the, <laughs> the red snakes. We see vinegar popping up in a lot of different you So know, if you're having a salad and eating that t- and using the vinegars, etc., you're actually doing yourself a lot of justice. Absolutely. Yeah. It, really, it really helps with glycemic control. And these are food ways. So if you have sweet potato in a salad and you have got some balsamic vinegar in there with the dressing and a little bit of olive oil, fats also slow down gastric emptying.
emptying. And I, when I say gastric emptying, I mean the rate at which your stomach releases food molecules into the blood. Yep. So that's a really good one. People always refer to sourdough as being a better option than, say, normal white bread. And that's because of the fermentation process. We get that lactic acid production that is in the bread and that slows down that gastric emptying as well. So from a food perspective, there's heaps of stuff we can do. And I've got more. I'm just going to be smashing the apple cider and vinegar capsules before I eat. It's interesting to know that actually the way we cook food also impacts glycemic index. So if I have pasta and I cook it really well, and this is quite visual, this stuff, like you can actually picture it. If I had really sloppy, well overcooked pasta and I was trying to chop it up and blend it, it would be quite easy. It would sort of fall to pieces in my gut, which means you could see how that would release really quickly into my bloodstream. Whereas if I had pasta cooked al dente, when cooked a little bit less, it's a little bit more starchy and it's harder for our body to break it down. So we actually see a difference in glycemic response. So if I'm eating 300 calories of pasta and I blend it and drink it, it's going to have a different glycemic response to if you cooked it al dente were to consume it that way. Wow. And also, I mean, even rice, when it's been cooled down, put into the fridge, we actually increase the resistant starch. And resistant starch is fabulous for the gut. So we can actually play around with the molecular structure of food in a matter of days and actually make it quite, quite beneficial for us. Have you got a blog or something on that that people can go read further on? I do. I absolutely do. So that's on my website. Glycemic index is something that you need to put a little bit of context around because the opposite end of glycemic, it's not the glycemic index. It's not bulletproof because you'll find you look up and chocolate milk is actually low GI. So I've had a lot of people come up to me and be like, hang on a second. You're telling me that low GI foods are good for me. And I've just seen that chocolate milk is on the list. You know, I'm going to assume that not all chocolate milks are the same. No, but it's because of the fat content of milk that slows down gastric emptying and that improves the health status of that food. It doesn't mean it's healthy. And then the same token, watermelon and other fruits have a higher glycemic index, which doesn't mean that they're not not healthy. It just means that they, you know, they've got a lot of water content and relative to the water content they've got they're quite high sugar. Well, you know, we might drive people to your website, harrietwalker.com.au to read up on the different types of foods and like rice and I assume. Yeah. That stuff you've talked about. Yeah, that, absolutely. That. And there's some Perfect. really, yeah, these are some really tangible They're great tips. great tips, yeah. And it's it's knowing about food chemistry mm. because, you know, food is neither good nor bad and there's just knowing the information about how to manipulate it, which is important. So knowledge is power, as okay. with everything. But there's a lot of questions that you, you see quite often when it comes to... Um, I've got a couple. Do you want me to throw a couple at you? Oh, uh, you know how much I love your questions, Craig. Let's go. I did they a little bit of research here. never off guard. <laughs> My first one is, for what causes insulin resistance? Like the straight up, let's just, not a big story, let's just give us... Look, generally speaking, there is going to be a lifestyle component to insulin resistance and there's going to be probably a genetic component. Yep. So some people are just more prone to it. The actual mechanism is still quite unclear, but we know when people are carrying a little bit of extra weight, they are inactive, they've got high body fat levels that we see insulin resistance. The cells are not functioning as they should and the insulin that is being released needs to be released in higher doses in order to clear blood glucose levels. So the actual mechanism is still a little bit unclear, but we know the sort of cluster of issues that we're looking at. Overeating calories, high glycemic index or high sugar diet, high body fat levels and inactivity are probably being some of the key factors there when we're talking about what causes insulin resistance. So that would probably be the the roundabout answer there. And how prevalent is like the type 2 diabetes, for example, which is a classic case of what happens when you're suffering it's a quite a big problem in australia like it costs 
costs a lot of money to, mm-hmm. in our healthcare system. For the fact that it is a lifestyle-related disease, I think it's something like 2 million Australians have diabetes or pre-diabetes. So it's like one What's the six. difference between diabetes and pre-diabetes? So pre-diabetes, we're looking at that high blood fat, high you know blood triglycerides. So yep. We're looking at high blood pressure. So it's a cluster of symptoms, but they're glycemic control. We're still not seeing the blood glucose levels at those really, really high levels. They're still, the insulin is still working, but it's slowing down. Okay. So that's pre-diabetes. And at that stage, we can catch it. Like we can do those lifestyle interventions. We can get people probably consuming a little bit less carbohydrate we can get them choosing sort of smarter carbohydrate choices. We can get them being more active so that they use those carbohydrates. At that point, when it goes into diabetes, that's when people, some people can manage their diabetes with lifestyle. So they'll have a meal and they'll probably go for a walk after Speaking dinner. Speaking of lifestyle, how are these people feeling? They're not I feeling... Mean, you've <laughs> just mentioned a whole lot of chemical things happening in the body. It's funny with diabetes, it not only impacts body you know, our health, general health, but it also really impacts well-being. And you'll see that people with diabetes actually rate themselves as having a lower status of wellness. There is a... How do you rate yourself with diabetes? The questionnaire you guys have got. There's different research yeah. papers that are out there and they'll use different questionnaires, but there's actual sort of validated questionnaires that'll actually rate people's sense of well-being. And with diabetes, we see there's a higher <clears throat> incidence of sort of depression. And then there's also how it feels within their body. If their body isn't using their energy properly, whether it's fat as energy or carbohydrates as energy or they're feeling quite a bit of fatigue as well. So what are some of the signs and symptoms of that insulin resistance you're talking about? Yeah, so I think one of the key ones is looking at that abdominal fat. So that's one of the big ones there. People have that spare tire around the middle, which is not ideal. Uh, For men, I think it's 100 centimetres around their middle. If they're over that, they're going to be in an increased risk. Is that breathing in or natural? At natural, just let it out. Okay. And then for women, I think it's under under 80 centimetres is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, which is, you know, another thing that goes hand in hand with insulin resistance is that increased risk of cardiovascular disease, which is not ideal. Okay. So you've talked about 100 centimetres, 80 centimetres. Let's get to the crux of this. How long does it take to develop type 2 diabetes? Diabetes is very much a progressive disease and we can catch it like a lot earlier. So insulin resistance into pre-diabetes into type 2 diabetes. How long is this little journey? Oh, we're talking a couple of decades. So most people are starting to be So you've got time to pull out and fix up. Absolutely, you do. This is a lifestyle disease. Mm -hmm. It is obviously, you know, type 1 diabetes is a whole other kettle of fish, which we aren't covering today. No. Type 1 diabetes is the body's inability to to produce any insulin at all, and that's an autoimmune disease. So we're not talking about that one. Type 2 diabetes, we have people who... Lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. Lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. Overeating calories, getting high glucose levels, high fat storage levels. So is it purely a middle age epidemic or is it... We are getting people getting it earlier and earlier, but generally speaking, the diagnosis is going to be coming in their sort of early 40s. Like I said, it's not... We're not completely out of the woods just because we're young. If we're inactive and overweight, that's going to be putting us in. So I know sort of early 30s, people with pre-diabetes and blood glucose issues. So, I mean, the government's not sending out diabetes blood tests like they are for 
other things. Is the doctor checking on this with every blood test we do just to see what's happening? Or well, it's one of the... How do we know? Like, It's one of the standard... Like when you get a standard blood test, it's going to include blood triglycerides, yep. cholesterol levels. You're going to get one of the basic things, getting your blood pressure tested. So there are actually some really simple ways of picking up. If somebody is, you know, 32 and they've got high blood pressure and high blood triglycerides and they're carrying a little bit of extra weight around their middle, I would only hope that that doctor is discussing their lifestyle with them okay. because that's that's the time to catch that person because they've still got So time. what do we ask our doctor? Give me the one-liner. Do Doc? I have insulin resistance? Do I have insulin resistance? Got it. Yeah, I'm ticking all these boxes. I've listened to the Body Science Podcast. I'm a bit concerned about my health status. I'd like to eat some more vegetables and exercise more. What else can I and do? And can you dip my red snakes in vinegar? And could, Wow. Do you have any vinegar for that <laughs> lollipop you just gave me? Okay, let's not muck around. We've got a dietitian here. What are some of the practical changes for someone who has insulin resistance or is has the... The risk? Or yeah, the, the risk. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Presenting. See, that's why you're in a clinic and I'm not. First things first is I, if, if you think you are at risk, get some tests on. Get your blood test on. Test your blood glucose levels. Your doctor can set you up with that. So that's the first things first. Okay. Next thing is addressing your diet. So we know that foods that are less processed are going to be automatically improving the diet quality. Low carbohydrate diets relative to what people used to eat. So Mm -hmm. it's funny with low carbohydrate diets, there's a lot of different definitions, but people tend to go to from, you know, only eating vegetables and like maybe a small bit of fruit and berries and that's low carb. But then on the opposite end, they're like, oh, if you're not eating low carb, you're eating like lamingtons and mud cake and, you know, hot chips all the time. There's actually a happy medium in there and making sure that people have got healthy habits is a really big part of that, reducing their sugar intake. But just being careful with obviously relationship with food with this as well. not a lower carbohydrate diet as a treatment to help resensitize our body to insulin to also help lose weight can be a really effective tool. But we also want to concentrate on the quality of the, the diet overall and not just hyper-focus on carbohydrate intake. Very important, but we, you know, if we're still eating fried chicken, you know, that's going to be impacting the level of fat that's, you know, in consumed in our diet, which is also going to have an impact on body fat levels as well if there is a calorie excess. So, okay, if you're, you're talking about sugar, what about things like uh, artificial sweetener, stevia, natural sweeteners, formatin, all those type of things, what are they doing? So they're not going to be having a glycemic response per se. Mm -hmm. So I would potentially be using them as a stepping stone if somebody has a high reliance. So say someone's drinking a soft drink, for example, mm-hmm. you know, four of those a day, they might go to a diet soft drink or a stevia flavored yeah, soft drink absolutely. on the way to the next step to getting yeah. the water or something that's so, I mean, it would be like me suggesting going from eating a packet of chips at lunchtime to eating carrot sticks and hummus. Yeah, it's a big step. It's, it's not smart very step, appealing. It's not a... <laughs> I get a lot of really kind of looks and I'm like, oh, okay, my bad. Let's just do a stepping stone first. And obviously artificial sweeteners are, at this stage, you know, there's nothing, you know, so they're not, insulin, they're not, not, they're not insulin. going to be doing anything. Okay. But what they are doing, like what they are, they're not helping us get rid of that want for intense sweetness. And we also want people to be able to regulate that craving for really, really, really sweet food. So if we can bring that down a few pegs as well, obviously we don't want people consuming large amounts of diet drinks because that's just swapping one for one in a habit. Mm-hmm. But 
if we could use it as a stepping stone to bring down that consumption and eventually get them to just having water and lemon juice, which is so holy and you know good, that would be that would be ideal. Do many people you know live in that bubble? Look, it depends where you are in the world, but some people really like to pop their green smoothies and lemon juice yeah, water, it and it, yep. it's really good for you. That's the thing that that we know that looking at acetic acid and it, vinegar and its impact on glycemic level, you know, lemon juice and all those other acidic foods, fermented foods, kimchi, you know, those sort of foods are also going to have that same modulating effect on blood glucose levels as well. And when you say modulating effect, what do you mean by that? I mean, reducing the impact that those carbohydrates are having on the blood glucose levels. Yeah. So we've looked at the role of insulin in relation to general health and it's not bad. It does its job. You've got to treat it right. Mm-hmm. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Can we use insulin as an advantage for those out there that want to build muscle? Yeah, 100% we can. It's actually really funny in preparation for this. I was checking out all the YouTube channels on like bodybuilders and insulin and it is definitely an abused substance. So we're talking like diabetic insulin being injected into the body. Well, that's not what we're about that to talk about now. That is not what we're talking about, about at food. all. We are talking about food. And, we're... and maybe a supplement. Yeah. Absolutely. So what we're talking about is looking at after resistance training, we have an increase in our insulin levels um, in response to that exercise. We can, so we know- And that's the stress aspect that's brought that out? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So what we can get is a, we know that we're using insulin to shuttle glucose into the cell. And we could also use that scenario to help bring other molecules into the cell at the same time. Is this like being at the taxi rank? in Surface Paradise on a Saturday night and it's three o'clock and everyone's heading out? Yeah. So you know, I don't know who you are, but you can come in my cab. Yeah. Just get in there, mate. We'll, yep. we'll, split, the, we'll split the fee. Yep. Similar, maybe not quite, <laughs> but close. So with resistance training, we get an increased stimulus for muscle protein synthesis. Yep. And when we have an increase in protein and amino acids at this time, we see our body ticking over into a sort of positive status for muscle protein synthesis. If we don't have enough protein in our diet, we might duck into a negative muscle protein balance. So you're saying we've trained, we've created a little transporter from the stress and we can take more protein at this time, yet there's no such thing as an anabolic window anymore. There is still information out there that does show that in that sort of hour after the anabolic window, as we would say old school terms, that that is there. What's a new school term for it then? Well, look, we just know that it lasts a lot longer. So if you're, you and your bro have just So there's no panic. It's just There's get no it panic. in. Like yep. the window doesn't shut on your fingers. You can make the most of it. But if it doesn't happen, if you're in a calorie surplus and you're consuming regular boluses of protein across the day, when I say bolus, I mean chunks, you know, good yep. quality chunk of protein at each meal. And you're meal. a fan of having a bit of protein before you train too, aren't you? Yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. Before and after, if possible. But I might just use the next meal as my opportunity um, to get that protein in and keep my blood amino acid pool high. And does it need to be a like a pure WPI at this stage or can it obviously talking supplements here leading yeah. into the meal or are you talking something that's a, a whey or a plant protein with some type of carb source as well? Yeah, look, we know that whey protein is one of the best ways of maximizing that insulin response because whey has an insulogenic impact mm-hmm. on the blood glucose levels as well. Sort yep. of almost, well, you know, it's quite high con- comparative to sugar as well. So insulin is spiked in response to whey protein. Yep. And obviously because we've just trained our blood is away from our gut our digestion is impaired a little bit so using a pre-digested protein that can get shuttled into the cells quicker is going to be more optimal obviously food first where we can but actually after training 
a whey protein powder is is a really great way of maximizing that that opportunity to get more nutrients into the cell and to pop our body into a positive balance of muscle protein synthesis. And so my post-workout salad within that hour afterwards doesn't have vinegar on it at this stage? No, we don't want a slow digestive empty. No vinegar post-workout? We actually, this is an opportunity. If you have a little treat that you like to have that might be a bit higher in sugar, that might be the opportunity to use it in a smart way and have a little bit of sugar after training to maximize that replenishment of muscle glycogen post-training. And then we get protein intake uh, that goes to building the muscle. And can I, you're talking about placing muscle glycogen. How did I just train? If I went for a 50-minute walk on the beach? You're not going to have Yeah, no, I just want, this is for everyone to hear like. Well, I mean, like we said, when we. Little looking, cardio session, little run on the treadmill. Little run on the treadmill. So I suppose what we're looking at is we've got certain amounts of glycogen stored in the liver, in the muscles and ready to go in the blood. And then all of our other cells use glucose as well. So if we've used up a little bit of liver glycogen, we're going to replenish that first. And then um, the next stop is the muscle glycogen, we'll replenish that first. And if we've eaten in a calorie surplus, then, you know, that excess energy is, is going to be stored there. But yeah, look, chances are in a... I'm just saying, I've had a train and you're saying I can have a crack at something that I really like. What type of train have I had? I've had a hit session. How That's long? That's a very good point. You've, you've got to want to have worked pretty hard and resistance training weights... Yep. Heavy lifts is probably the optimal kind of training to be using this advice. If you've gone and done yoga session or you've gone for a walk with a dog, that and you're trying to lose weight, that is not that is not where we're using this information. We're using it for people who are regularly active and working to a higher level of sort of moderate to vigorous activity. That's a really good good opportunity to clarify that. Yes, because okay. you do get people flaunting the rules. <laughs> well, the rules sounded pretty good there for a while. The dietitian said I could have something sweet. Exactly, and I've then she just took it back away from me. <laughs> And, and she's taken my red snakes away. So yeah. what am I going to do? I'm not sure. But yeah, we and we can also use other supplements to the advantage after training as well. And creatine is one of those ones that we can see from research is it responds really well in combination with some, some glucose, some fast acting sugars, getting it into the muscle cell. We see an increase in cell volume. That's going, that sort of is associated with better training with, um, you know, creatine is obviously associated with energy production. If we can get saturation of the muscles with creatine, we're going to be seeing long-term um, performance benefits as well. So whey protein and creatine are probably the two ones, two supplements that I would be looking at potentially supplementing after a training session. Mm-hmm. And then with protein, generally making sure that we're consuming regular doses of protein across the day to keep that muscle protein synthesis. So the anabolic window lasts a lot longer than the hour. But there is an opportunity there to take advantage of those insulin levels. Yeah. And for those vegans out there or vegetarians that aren't touching whey at the moment, how's rice and pea proteins? Yeah, look, they there are some studies that have compared the, the plant sources versus the whey and whole, even whole proteins like milk. And they don't stack up as well, but they still are providing those essential amino acids which are associated with muscle protein synthesis. So obviously in this scenario, if you're not eating meat products or animal products and you're taking a pea protein, a soy protein, a brown rice protein, it's going to be doing the job. It probably won't have as big an impact, but mm-hmm. it'll still have an impact. Absolutely. So okay, total cool. protein is just as important 
as when you have it. But yeah, it's interesting when people look at, you know, the detrimental effects of, you know, you've got to give your body a chance for, you know, to recover from insulin. Insulin's got a half-life of about 10 minutes. So we know that caffeine has a half-life of six hours. So if I drink coffee, half of the caffeine will be gone from my body in six hours. And then another six, you know, half, half, half again until it's cleared from the body. Insulin only has a half-life of about 10 minutes. I reckon caffeine at six hours is hiding somewhere though. It's got to be hiding because... You're still pinging after, yeah, after six about hours. About half an hour. After it, about half an hour. But we're also looking at how much total across the day, Greg. Yes, true. That's just as important. So if we're constantly topping up that caffeine store, <laughs> we're, we're going to see a, a high level of caffeine in the body across the day. But Before I forget, because I'm getting older, you said insulin's got a half-life of 10 minutes, mm-hmm. So, but you said the window after training isn't that much of an issue. If we can keep it up with glucose, so if yep. we can introduce more glucose, if we can continually keep on pumping up that insulin level across with food, can keep that open a little bit longer, if that makes sense. Because obviously for a long time in the industry said 20 minutes and you got protein it. shake. Done. Was that based on that 10-minute theory you're just talking about? I'm not sure not sure with that one like obviously it's not just secreted once and then that's it we know there's generally like a sort of a pulsatory effect with hormones they're sort of pulsed out until the stimulus is brought back down to to resting levels with food we can modulate that and keep it up a little bit longer but we're we're changing the stance on how long that actually is okay. now as opposed to that just that 20 minute windows closed you've lost your gains yeah. Insulin and SUPS, have you got anything on your website we can look at? I know I'm driving people to your website, but you are a dietitian and that's where people should be going yeah, for information. Yeah, absolutely. So I sort of blog, not sort of, I blog on a regular basis about these sorts of topics. These are the questions that I get asked on the regular. And so I will have a couple of FAQs about supplements and insulin glycemic index all in the one little downloadable sheet on there. So nice. I'll make so sure that that's HarrietWalker.com.au. Absolutely. So look, just in wrapping up, give us a summary on insulin. This is your masterclass. Here it is. Is. So, I mean, the first things first is insulin isn't, you know, the, 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 devil. the cause of all disease in the history of man. Like there's a lot of people out there who are pointing the finger. I think in about five, 10 years time, we're going to have a bigger picture and we need to have a bigger picture because very rarely in history has it ever been one single thing that's made an issue. Yeah. So what we want to look at is, you know, excessive energy is what is probably going to be the biggest issue in terms of fat storage and insulin resistance. Carbohydrate rates play a role in that mm-hmm. because of their glycemic index because of their the insulin response to that food but it's also looking at the fact that fats and proteins also have an insulin response as well obviously okay. not to the same degree so when if i was looking at somebody i'm not going to point straight to carbohydrates and say that's the reason why you've got insulin resistance i'm going to look at the diet quality i will reduce the types of carbohydrates the, the, the total level of carbohydrate probably needs to come down the quality of carbohydrates need to be focused on but i'm also looking at total energy intake of that person and i'm aiming for weight loss in order to resensitize their body to insulin you know what'd you say seven percent or something yeah seven percent so like we've, we've discussed this before and metabolic flexibility is probably the end goal with most people you know when we cut out whole macromolecules so either cutting out you know carbs or we're cutting out fat our body down regulates the ability to use those long term like obviously with insulin resistance reducing the glycemic load on the body for a little while is probably going to assist in the short term at treating that issue but in the long 
to and we want to make sure that our body is actually flexible to use both because we don't want to have to be thinking about this all the time in terms of carbs are bad, fats are good. Food is generally in a package. There's going to be a little bit of fat. There's going to be a little bit of carbohydrates. If we can focus on diet quality and eating within a regulated calorie range with high quality carbohydrates, with high quality fats, with high quality proteins on a regular basis, whole foods, fruit and vegetables, low calorie dense high nutrient dense foods that's when we're going to get the runs on the board with people and their diet quality is going to be better and we're going to see better health outcomes yeah, as well that's great news and that's good to hear a little question to ask at the end here i know i said we're wrapping up but you just mentioned eating really well all week and then the weekend comes mm-hmm. so you're heading out yep and you are uh, obviously beer what does it do Obviously, beer. Well, we've got two components to beer that will be having an issue. So the carbohydrate content of beer and then the alcohol content of beer and then also the overall, between those two things, the calorie content of beer. Alcohol is a toxin in the body and we do see that people have impaired metabolism when they're consuming large volumes of alcohol. So it does slow down the metabolism of you know normal macromolecules mm-hmm. in response because we want to get rid of that toxin from the body. Plus, we we're consuming large amounts of calories. So if you're having one beer a couple of times a week, no worries in the context of a regular calorie controlled diet. But if we're going to the weekend and we're consuming a case of beer, which is not uncommon, even half a case or even a six pack. Case of beer, not uncommon. Got to get to some of these dietitian parties. Put some acidic acid with cases of beer. <laughs> <laughs> you! Um, but what we're seeing is like a calorie excess as well. So calories aside, what's happening with my insulin when I'm drinking beer? Well, it's probably going to be spiking that little little mouse on the treadmill. What about red wine? Red wine, slightly lower carbohydrate content, still got the alcohol component, but we we drink a lesser volume of white wine, wine, red wine, white wine. They're on par. On par. Champagne? Similar, similar again. So lower calorie content and lower carbohydrate content. Still, obviously, in excess, not going to be ideal. If we're looking at Bundy and Cokes, well, we've got a problem because people... What if we're looking at Bundy and Diet Coke? Diet Coke. That would be a step down in the right direction for people looking to reduce who aren't ready to give up their Bundy yet. So it's about creating healthy habits and doing sustainable practices. Is there sugar in Bundy, like alcohols? Yeah, there would be a component of sugar in there. So I suppose the lowest content is would probably be vodka although the white spirits don't tend to have they're pretty much just the alcohol yeah. component but I'd have to actually look at what the, the carbohydrate so if we're trying to behave and we can't behave it's vodka soda vodka soda we put yeah. a lemon in that we could put a bit of lemon in that because look you know, the acidic foods are going to be assisting with glycemic control. So I think we've just come up with the answer, Greg. No, I don't think that's the answer. That's not we'll, the answer uh, at you'll all. You'll push through that one. Delete, delete. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, thanks for coming on board. HarrietWalker.com.au. That's your insulin masterclass. If there's any questions, email Harriet at... Hello at HarrietWalker.com.au. Or drop a message somewhere around body science. Yep, thanks, fantastic. Guys. Thanks for having me. This week's podcast was brought to you by our premium partners, Nutrition Warehouse Nationally, ASN Nationally, Mr. Supplement, Sporty's Warehouse, Fat Burners Only, and Evelyn Fay.